Today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. We have hidden from God. We have shame that comes when we're quiet and see where we are and what we've done and how our life is functioning dangerously. And then finally we blame others. It's, it's the city, it's the job. I don't have a good enough mind. It's my health, it's my friends. Put all of this together and we've got the reason for the dysfunctional family today. It's called the curse. The truth is there's only one blueprint for building a healthy home. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young begins his message, Building a Functional Family. It gives you powerful insight into the biblical building blocks for a healthy home. You won't want to miss it, so stay with us on The Winning Walk. Now, here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, Building a Functional Family. Father, we seek to understand anew where we came from, who we are, why we are here, and where we are going. These basic questions of life. Lord, as we look at family and parenting, Give us insight into thy truth. Give us insight into our own personalities, our own lifestyles. And Lord, may we not think of someone else, a wife or husband or son or daughter or father or mother or grandparents, but may we look in the mirror and may thy word be that mirror in which you come with the power that only you have to change some of us from whatever would characterize our personality and our lives so that we too might become forgiven and cleansed and healed and become a prince or princess for you. You speak, let me get out of the way so that thy word may be heard and put in practice into our lives. Well, this is our prayer in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. How do we learn? By repetition. Line upon line, precept upon precept. You repeat it to us often enough. We recite it often enough. We go over it enough and enough and enough, and we say, as far as our intellect is concerned, I understand, I know that. I have comprehended it. I have learned. But the other side of the coin is we learn intellectually, line upon line, precept upon precept, but we have a hard time learning experientially. Because we say so many times, I will never do that again. <laughs> and a month, six months, year, sometimes shorter than that, there we are right back again. I will never say that again. And there we are, day, month, week, year, right back there again. 
We learn line upon line, precept upon precept, but experientially, we have a tough time learning. In our culture today, there is a mantra that's repeated over and over and over again, and most of us have bought into this line upon line, precept upon precept that we hear on every, every shore of our planet, especially in the Western culture. You know what it is? It's this. If you are cared for from the cradle to the grave, Medicare, Medicaid, house, food, clothing, all the things that make a physical life, if you have that, and then you have the ability to receive an education according to your capacity, and you have that, and then you have all the pleasure things, all the hedonistic things of travel, of trips, of recreation, and you have that, those three things. I know many, many individuals who have all of that and their lives and their families function dangerously. I know many, many individuals who have none of that and their lives function dangerously. I stated last week before almost 16,000 people who came to worship in our weekend services, this fact, the dysfunctional family is the number one problem in America. And you know what? I get letters about everything, calls about everything, emails about everything, but I didn't get a one who said, that's not true. I think it's beyond debate. The dysfunctional family is the number one problem in America. We discover the word dysfunctional means not functioning. Oh no, it means functioning dangerously. Now we have to ask the problem, oh, how did this happen? What's the basic core thing? And, and I have tried to use all kind of verbiage and see how we ended up like this with this dysfunctional family. And I said, well, a dysfunctional family has a dysfunctional daughter, and a dysfunctional family has a dysfunctional son, and the dysfunctional son marries a dysfunctional daughter, and they have children who are dysfunctional. That's how it happens. That's the diagnosis. What's the problem? And I thought about trying to express the problem as simply and succinctly as I possibly could and I kept narrowing it down and narrowing it down until finally it was ever, ever so obvious. The problem is one thing, the curse. The curse. You say, what is that? It is simply this, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve in that pristine garden, they were created in the image of God and they so fellowship with Almighty God 
that God supplied all that Adam needed to live his life in his image, and God supplied all that Eve needed to live her life in his image, and Adam and Eve and God had a triangle there, and there was harmony and rhythm and fulfillment because God met all the needs of that first family. It was magnificent. They had dominion. Their marriage clicked, their lives clicked, their vocation clicked. They had it all together. But something happened. The evil one came with the serpent and he offered a proposition. He said, do you want to be like God? Do you want to be like God? And suddenly the, I know it's fruit, but we'll call it the pre-apple garden, the two inhabitants made a very serious mistake. We call it the fall, okay? The fall. And they decided to trade dependence on God for control. They thought the ability to control their own lives, their own destiny, to meet their own needs, to make their own choices was better than being dependent upon Almighty God to meet all their needs and to lead them and guide them in His way and in His will. So they move from dependence on God to control their own lives. The curse began. Now, how did the curse play out itself? Right there in the beginning, it played out itself exactly the way it plays out today. First of all, every relationship was changed. Every relationship was changed. Their relationship to God they wanted to hide. <laughs> they, they were hiding. God says, Adam, where are you? I, I don't see you. I, I'm not fellowshipping with you. Where are you? He said, I'm hiding. <laughs> You're hiding? When we decide to move from being dependent upon God to making our own decisions and calling our own shots in our life and doing our own thing, the first thing that happens in our relationship to God, we want to hide. Now, I've heard a zillion reasons why people do not read the Bible every day and pray. I've heard 10 zillion reasons why people do not go to church. I don't like organized religion, therefore I like disorganized religion. Uh, I don't like the choir, I don't like this, I don't like that, it's too big, it's too small, it's right. I, you can't tell me anything I haven't already heard about why we're not faithful in God's house, but I am going to tell you this morning categorically, dogmatically, the reason many of us are not faithful in God's house is because we have decided to move from being dependent upon Him to control our own lives and make our own choices. Therefore, we must hide. We don't want to be close to God, to deal with God, to know God. We hide, just like Adam and Eve. 
The first thing that changes when we move from being dependent to controlling our own lives is we hide from God, our relationship with God. The next thing that changes is our relationship to ourselves. Oh, number one. You know what we feel about ourselves? Shame. That's the reason we've got to have the music going. That's the reason we've got to be watching TV. That's the reason we've got to be going on a trip. That's the reason we've got to be building something. We've got to be doing something. We've got to be reading something. We've got to be writing something. We've got to be moving. Because when we get quiet, we recognize shame because we know the fact that we're controlling ourselves. There's a lot of things that get out of control and are beginning to function dangerously. So our relationship to ourselves is one of shame. Unless we keep the racket going, the activity going, the challenge going, and we have to move and go. And so many, many people say to me, I don't like being alone, alone. I, I, I've got to be with somebody or I have to be asleep. Uh, you see, the reason so many, many times for that is that there is shame because we want to run our own lives and we are running our own lives in rebellion against God. The next thing that changed is our relationship to others. We sit in Adam and Eve. And there's blame. We hide God. We hide. Shame ourselves. Blame others. God confronted Adam. He said, it's my wife. <laughs> God confronted Eve. It's the serpent. And they both were trying to blame God. And this pattern has gone over and over in every individual life present here today because we were born in sin, not the sexual acts, not the birth. We were born with a bent towards sin because we inherited this from Adam and Eve and we have perpetuated this because we too have I don't want to be dependent on God. I want to control my own life. And we have hidden from God. We have shame that comes when we're quiet and see where we are and what we've done and how our life is functioning dangerously. And then finally, we blame others. It's, it's the city. It's the job. I don't have a good enough mind. It's my health. It's my friends. We have a zillion ways in which to blame others. Put all of this together and we've got the reason for the dysfunctional family today. It's called the curse. The curse. Now see it played out in the family of Jacob. The curse expresses itself. We run our own lives in so many different ways. In one family, it will be a family that has a spirit of anger, of temper. My dad lost his temper. My, my, my mother was just violent. And, and there is abuse uh, physically and sexually and emotionally and verbally. There's abuse. And sometimes a curse plays out itself in this particular way in a family. 
Sometimes it plays itself with, with sexual problems, with disorientation, with, with abnormal drives, with unfaithfulness, adultery, fornication. So many ways it expresses itself sexually. In some family, it plays it out in that way. In another situation, it'll play itself out, well, you name it, fill in the blank. Now, as we look at this patriarchal constellation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we have from Genesis 12 through Genesis 50, a picture of a dysfunctional family. Oh yeah, it's right there. And we have great detail about how this family functioned dangerously. And the way the curse expressed itself, first of all, now it splintered off into a lot of things. You see, if there's abuse in a family, it'll express itself in so many different ways through the different children. Or if there's sexual problems in a family, it'll express it in so many ways, many different children. And sometimes there's, there's alcoholism in a family, it'll express it away in so many different ways to the children. Or, or there's addiction in the family. It, it just goes and scatters and expresses its way, but it's all the source is the curse. Now, how did it express itself in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's family? Favoritism, isn't that interesting? Favoritism produces adversarial ambition. It wouldn't hurt if you wrote that down. Favoritism produces adversarial ambition. When favoritism is in a family, that's always the result. See it in the family of the patriarchs. Abraham preferred Isaac over Ishmael, his two children. Isaac had preeminence. Isaac preferred Esau over Jacob, second generation. But really it was compounded there because Rebekah preferred Jacob over Esau. Here's mama's boy, Jacob cooked, stayed around home. Here's daddy's boy, Esau was the hunter and the outdoorsman. And you read the scripture and you have Isaac talking about my son, it was Esau. You have Rebecca talking about her son, it was Jacob. So you have favoritism in the family. And we've already looked at the results of that. Jake, conned his brother out of his inheritance, the double portion the older son should have gotten. Remember Esau was the older son because he was a twin, older son of about probably two minutes, bang. <laughs> and then along with his mother, he, he fleeced and conned and lied to his daddy Isaac and he got his covenant birthright. So we see already how that played itself out in our study last week. Well, you say, surely Jacob, who had all of this problem, in fact, Esau put a contract out on his brother, said, I will kill him as soon as daddy dies. You would think surely Jacob would break this and he would see the danger and the deadliness of favoritism. But guess what? Jacob had Joseph through the first 11 children that were born in his family, Joseph was by far his favorite and he made no bones about it. You see, the curse is there in the family. You say, well, that's an abnormal thing. No, I just look at my own family, just part of my own family. 
You say, well, here's the curse. What's the problem with the curse? Well, that's just the way my family was. That's just the way your family is. That's just the way we are. What, what is the big deal about the curse anyway? We all have these propendencies. We all have these tendencies. Is it nature? Is it nurture? You know, what's the diagnosis? We, we see it's the curse, but what is the problem with it? Let me tell you something. It gets compounded when it's passed from generation to generation to generation. And here is the problem with it. Take your Bibles, open them to Exodus chapter number 34, verse 6 following. This is the problem with the curse. This is the vision Moses had of God, Exodus 34, beginning with verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, and boy, I love all this about God. You'll love this. Listen, listen. the Lord, the Lord God is compassionate. Aren't we thrilled God is compassionate? What if we had another kind of God? God is gracious. Oh, that's great. God is slow to anger. That's magnificent. And abounding in loving kindness and truth. <laughs> boy, that's God who keeps loving kindness for thousands, oh, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the kind of God I like, a God who is gracious and forgiving and long-suffering and kind and benevolent and gives gross sin and petty sin. We love a God of unbounding benevolence and love and benefits and forgiveness because we can do our own thing. But there's one little word there. You see it? The middle of verse 7, it says, yet, I wish that word were not there. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. That's the problem with the curse as it plays itself out in your personality, in your life, in your family, in your walk. That's the problem. See? And it increases in intensity. Abraham, well, he passed off his wife as his sister on two occasions in order to save his life, and Isaac did it on one occasion, passed his wife off as his sister to save his hide. And, but then you have Jacob comes along, and all of this is compounded because you can study the children of Jake. Oh, we could spend a month looking at their lives as how this family dysfunction. And look what happened to the children. I won't run through all of it, but I can tell you two of the boys, Simeon and Levi, because their sister was taken advantage of sexually by an older man in a city, in a small town, Simeon and Levi stepped up and murdered every man in the town. Mass murder, Simeon and Levi, two boys, two siblings of Big Jake. You say, oh, what a terrible thing to happen to a family. Oh, it even gets maybe a little worse. Reuben was guilty of incest in the family. <whistles> Boy, I wish you hadn't said that. Judah, the oldest, 
had sexual relations with his daughter-in-law and she got pregnant and he said, I thought she was a prostitute. I mean, I, I thought she was a prostitute. Joseph had dreams and he lorded over all of his brothers saying, I'm my dad's favorite. I can get away with anything. I'm smarter than you, better than you, bigger than you, stronger than you. I will rule over you. And he lorded it over all of his other 10 brothers and wore that coat his daddy gave him alone. He was an egomaniac in his teenage years. That's how it expressed itself, the curse, in different ways. It's twisted. It moves on. Until finally the brothers said, we've had enough of Joe. And they took Joseph and they wanted to kill him. One brother said, let's sell him as a slave. And that's what they did. He was sold as a slave and he got out of the family and out of the culture and out of the trap. You see what happens with the curse? Now we have to ask the question, can the curse be healed? Can the curse be abated? Can the curse be eliminated? Because a lot of us here in different ways and different degrees, we have tendencies in our lives, in our families, in our personalities, in the way we relate to people. The curse is yet apparent. And I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of the generation, my generation, that sees the curse healed and eliminated in my family tree. And many of us would stand up today and say, that's what I want. That's what must happen in my life. Let me tell you something. It takes an experience. It takes a process for the curse as it spins itself off in many directions in our lives from our dysfunctional families in various degrees. Same cause as the curse. How is it healed? Let's look at big Jake, Jacob. Jacob, he had three great encounters with God. Three. The first one was at Bethel, Bethel, house of God. Remember when he left his mother and dad under the auspices of going to find a wife who would be godly and not a Canaanite white. The truth is, why did he leave home? Because his brother said, I'll kill you when daddy dies. Because you've conned me, you fleeced me. I'm going to kill you. He left out of fear of Esau, but he put a spin on it. You think spinning is brand new. He put a spin on it that he was going to find a, a godly woman uh, with his uh, mother's brother, a, a woman you know, like his mother, and, and, and Isaac bought it and Rebecca perpetuated it, but really he was running for his life. See, as a young man leaving the protection and the sanctity of the home and the prosperity of the home and going out on his own into a new world, a new climate, and he had nothing. And he spent the night alone and in that experience, he began to pray, and this is the Jacob's ladder. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. This is the experience, Bethel, in which he prayed. He saw his prayers going up, his prayers coming down, angels taking his position up, angels taking his petition down. And the amazing thing is God in his grace, in his benevolence, in his love said, Jake, I'm going to make a great people out of you and out of your descendants. 
and here he was running because he had been such a flim-flam man in his own family, running for his life, but God said, I'm going to bless you. God is some kind of God, isn't he? Even in our rebellion and our sin and our, our, our functioning dangerously, he says, Jake, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be special. You're going to be a leader of a family, of a people that will make a difference for me in the world. Isn't that amazing? That's Bethel, house of God. Great experience. The second great experience, some of you might think it was at Mizpah, the Mizpah Covenant. You remember when after being 20 years with Laban, after marrying two of his daughters, he now has 11 children and, and he has totally fleeced Laban until he became wealthy and Laban sort of held his own until Laban's son said, Jake is taking over everything and Jacob picked up the vibes and he ran in the cover of darkness until Laban went out and met him. He said, what do you mean? Taking my 11 grandchildren and taking my two daughters and you're running what is the meaning of this? And Jake says, well, you know, I was afraid you would kill me and wouldn't let me leave. I've worked for you 20 years, seven years for one daughter, seven years for another daughter, six years in which he did that fancy negotiation there where all the spotted and all the speckled cattle would be his. And he was a wealthy man and he was running, taking great resources with him. And Laban says, all right, let's, let's, you know, you go your way, I go my way. There we have what is called the Mizpah Covenant, and we use that. It says something, may the Lord watch over you when we're absent one from another. You know, we use that in a very pious way. May the Lord watch over you when we're absent one from another. Read the context of that verse. You know what it is? It's one cheat talking to another cheat, one crook talking to another crook, and you read the whole context, and he's saying to his father, no, Laban, when I can't watch you, I hope God watches you. And Laban's saying, Jacob, you cheater. When, when, God, when I can't watch you, I hope God will watch you. And they put some rocks down. They built a pillar. They called it some kind of altar. And Jacob says, don't you pass these rocks to hurt me. And he says, I won't pass these rocks to hurt you. This is Young's free translation and is absolutely accurate. Two crooks, two mafia dons deciding on their turf. That's what that Mizpah covenant, as it's called, is all about. So that was not a great experience with God, in my opinion. But he had one at Bethel. And he had another great experience. As he was leaving home, it dawned on Jake. You know, it's been 20 years, but last time my brother Esau, he's a pretty tough guy, a hunter and an outdoorsman. He said he was going to kill me because I had stolen his double portion of inheritance and I had stolen his covenant birthright. I'd better check on the lay of the land back home before I go there with all of my vast resources, my wives, my children, all of my flocks and herds. I'd better see if Esau is still upset, <laughs> if he's still going to kill me. So he sends a messenger with elaborate gifts for Esau, whom he hadn't seen for 20 years. And, and the messenger says, oh, my servant Jacob, it's very pious. Oh, my servant, your servant Jacob is coming back. Da, 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 da. Here's all these gifts. And then the messenger comes back and Jake says, uh, what did you read in old Esau? You know, what was he? What, he's ready for me to come back home. Everything seemed all right. 
didn't seem, you know, still upset about the little problems we had back there 20 years ago. And the messenger said, he didn't say anything, but he is coming toward us with 400 armed men. <laughs> what was that? Jacob says, I think we've got a problem, Canaan. And, but he sends more presents to Esau. More presents. He's still coming with 400 armed men. Jacob, with his brilliant way of chicanery and duplicity and, and political maneuvering and, and the way to, to, to soft soap and brag and praise, man, he had all the gifts of a thoroughgoing, flim-flam man, con artist. I'm telling you, he would have been a fabulous salesman. And he was. So he divides, he sends his gifts to Esau, elaborate gifts. And then he divides all of his flocks up in one group and sends them over the Jabbok. He divides another group over the ford there in the Jabbok and the river. He says, well, if he attacks and takes all of my herds and kills all my servants in this first group, and then maybe the second group can get away. And if he gets that group, he gets the second group. And he said, then he sent his wives and his children over the Jabbok. And the last one to cross was old Jake, Jacob. He sent them all over. He stayed on the safe side of the river and spent the night. He was alone. I'm not a betting man, but I'll bet you. It's the first time he'd spent a night alone in a long time, maybe since when he left home 20 years ago and met God at Bethel. I don't know. But he was alone. He had nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. He couldn't go back. He couldn't go forward. He felt Esau was going to kill him. He sent everything across the way. And he begins to pray. You think you know how to pray? Let the doctor say, you've got a matter of weeks or hours. You think you know how to pray? Find yourself in some foxhole somewhere. You think you know how to pray? Let a moment come when your life is bottoming out. And old Jacob began to pray like he hadn't prayed in a long, long time. And as he was praying, a theophany took place. This means there was a, a presence of God, an angel, or, or, and, and someone grabbed him in the darkness, and they began to wrestle. There were, somebody was, this was a, a wrestling match, and, and Jacob was wrestling, and this divine being was wrestling, and the purpose in a wrestling match is to pin someone so they can't get up or to hold them until they submit. And in the match, you ask, what was that all about? I'll tell you what it was about. It was about Jacob not wanting to give up control of his life, see, to a divine being, to God. The same wrestling match that took place in the Garden of Eden that began the curse. That's what it was all about. Jacob had got along with his own skill, with his own intellect, with his own ability, with his own genius, with his own cunning, with his own personality, doing his own thing, controlling his own life, and now he's at the end of his rope and he's wrestling with an angel and the angel is holding him and squeezing him in a hope 
squeezing all the ego, the pride, the self-sufficiency, the vanity, the, the falseness, the phoniness, the sin, the hypocrisy, the greed, the sexual immorality, the duplicity. He's squeezing it out of Big Jake. But Big Jake hangs in there. He doesn't want to give up until he touches his thigh. His thigh is out of joint. His hip is dislocated, and it would be dislocated the rest of his life. Let me tell you something. You ask anybody who knows anything about physiology, when your thigh, when your hip is out of joint, the match is over. The match is over. Jacob surrenders. But he wouldn't let go of this, this angel, this wrestling divine made he wouldn't let go and he said will you bless me he said Jacob I'm not going to call you Jacob the cheater anymore I'm going to change your name to Israel a prince of God Jacob got up and he limped the rest of his life. But he moved from being in control of his life to being dependent upon God. Guess what happened when he met Esau? Esau was glad to see him and glad to welcome him home. Isn't that great? Isn't that fabulous? First great experience Bethel, second great experience, Penuel, which means there by the Jabbok, I saw God face to face. Third experience, Egypt. Remember what we're talking about? We're talking about healing of the curse. We're talking about how it happened in Jacob's life. I think there at the Jabbok, when his hip was out of joint, the curse was healed because now he moved away from hiding. Jacob didn't hide from God anymore. He moved away from feeling ashamed in his own life. He moved away from blaming his daddy, his mother, his brother, his uncle. His... He moved away. And now he said, God, I'm dependent on you and this limp will be with me for the rest of my life. I'll never, never, never forget. I'm moving out of controlling my life from being Jacob, the slick artist, Mr. Slick, to being a man of God, a prince of God. But what about the kids? How does this happen? I'm going to touch on it now, but I'm going to finish it next Sunday. The ace in the hole for God. I know you don't understand that terminology. Was Joseph. Joseph had been taken out of the family. Joseph had been taken out of this family who the curse was being compounded day by day, week by week. By year. Joseph was the wild card. I know you don't understand that terminology either. And Joseph got right with God. He was accused of raping someone he did not rape. He was put in prison for a crime he did not commit. And finally, supernaturally, only God would do something like this. He became prime 
minister of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And what did God do? There was hunger down there in Canaan and all the brothers went back and stood before Joseph. They didn't know it was the brother they'd sold into slavery. And Joseph did not conduct himself as a victim. He could have said, ha, 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 gotcha guys, gotcha. You sold me into slavery. Oh, ho, ho, ho. you don't know who I am? I hold my destiny in your hands. Your children are starving to death. My dad is starving to death. Gotcha. He was going to get revenge. He could have taken the role of victim. A lot of people take that role in a dysfunctional family. I'm a victim. My, my dad was an alcoholic. My mother was abusive. I went through a divorce. I'm a victim. Oh, I'm a victim. He didn't do that. He took the role of healer. Healer. And it brought about repentance by the brothers. They were put in prison in Egypt for a while. For they were accused of doing something they did not do, as Joseph was. As Joseph was. And finally, a charge was made that a life would be taken. And they stood up and said, oh, no, we can't have Benjamin now our father's favorite. He can't lose him. It would kill our dad. And one of the brothers stood up and said, the most vicious brother of all, oh, I will take his place. I will be the servant. I will be executed. They were accused of a crime they did not commit. They went in prison as Joseph went in prison. They were accused of a crime they did not commit as Joseph was accused of a crime they did not commit. You see what's happening? And all of a sudden, there is repentance. There is Forgiveness, there is confession. Somebody said, well, why didn't Joseph just immediately tell them who he was and take place? You see, the idea of easy healing of the curse, easy forgiveness is not biblical. It takes genuine repentance. It takes a genuine confession, a genuine turning away from it. And Joseph was patient enough and I think divine enough to see that take place in his family. And then finally the boys knew who he was and they cried. What a wonderful scene there in the Bible in about the 48th chapter of Genesis. They went back and got their dad. They had to confess to him that they sold Joseph into slavery. He grieved all those years from him and all the confession and all the healing. And suddenly there was a family again and the curse had been stopped with Joseph. How does that work with us? Jesus Christ took your curse and my curse upon him and was nailed to a tree. Understand me. He didn't take the role of a victim. He took the role of a healer as a unique son of God. And he offers to all of us individual and collectively forgiveness and healing. So the curse will be forgiven and broken and we can move out in newness of life. That hymn book in the pew in front of you, there's a lot of hymns in there, but they have basically one theme that I think pretty well summarize all the hymns in the hymn book. It's this phrase found in one particular hymn. It goes, he breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the sinner free. Isn't that terrific? He breaks the power of the curse and sets the sinner, the family, free. 
You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.